certainly want to wish uh, each and every one a happy new year. Uh, more importantly, that God's uh, grace would abide uh, mightily upon us through the challenges that confront us in the new year, but chiefly uh, that we might hold fast to the living God with the sure and ever-present comfort that he is holding fast to us. Our scripture reading this morning is in the 27th chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. Let us give attention to the public reading of God's holy word, the first 10 verses of Matthew 27. Early in the morning, all the chief priests and the elders of the people came to the decision to put Jesus to death. They bound him, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate, the governor. When Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 silver coins to the chief priests and the elders. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. What is that to us, they replied. That is your responsibility. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left. Then he went away and hanged himself. The chief priest picked up the coins and said, It is against the law to put this into the treasury, since it is blood money. So they decided to use the money to buy the potter's field as a burial place for foreigners. That is why it has been called the field of blood to this day. Then what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. They took the 30 silver coins, the price set on him by the people of Israel, and they used them to buy the potter's field as the Lord commanded me. text really speaks to uh, two different parties that uh, reject uh, our Lord. Uh, Judas is an individual, really the corporately, uh, the nation is at large. Uh, we don't read the nation, but uh, their leadership has rejected the Lord, and it's a corporate uh, relationship uh, that they bear with respect to the entire nation. And what follows the rejection, both of Judas and the nation, is uh, temporal and eternal consequences. It's something that we need to be reminded of in our culture. We, we don't think in terms of consequences in American culture. If there's a problem, someone's going to bail us out. Uh, there's all different levels of, of uh, government. There's all types of nonprofits. And we just simply don't square up with consequences. Uh, as we should sometimes. But the scriptures are clear. Rejecting Jesus has temporal and eternal consequences. The good news, of course, is the opposite. It's just as true. Accepting Jesus has temporal and eternal consequences. And so we will look at uh, these issues uh, this morning, the Lord willing. Uh, in the case of the first two verses, Matthew 27, the rejecting of Christ as both individual and corporate. It goes without saying that the ecclesiastical trial is the result of the betrayal of Judas, so uh, we know intuitively that uh, Judas has rejected uh, Christ. The Sanhedrin has met and sentenced uh, Jesus to death for his blasphemy. That was their particular charge in the religious trial. Uh, their problem was that the 
Sanhedrin couldn't really carry that charge to Rome because they could care less about blasphemy. What was that for Rome? They, it's not something that Rome would uh, execute someone for. So uh, they're going to uh, bring to uh, Pilate eventually uh, the charge that uh, Jesus was a revolutionary. So here they come, they begin to institute those actions, they bring Jesus to Pilate. Again, it's a serious crime with serious consequences. Something of this, uh, uh, in terms of apostasy, that if you need an illustration, there's a tragic illustration in sixth chapter of the book of Hebrews. It's very difficult uh, text, but in verses 4 to 6, the author of the book of Hebrews is a writing to interdict uh, the congregation from uh, committing apostasy. And he uses the historic illustration of the nation of Israel. Uh, Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 to 6, it is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God, and the power of the coming age, if they fall away, to be brought back to repentance. Reminder that that you can uh, hang around Christ for a while and then uh, reject him, and the author here seemingly is shutting off uh, repentance or coming back. Very difficult text, but I think that's simply the uh, reading uses something of the historic example of the nation of Israel in the wilderness. That's the reference of of having been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift. They were enlightened. They saw the miracles of God. They tasted uh, God's provision in the wilderness, the manna, the quail, uh, the water. Uh, They saw the Holy Spirit and, again, the visible presence of God and the pillar of uh, fire and the cloud. And certainly they tasted the good word of God and the powers of uh, God as he vanquished Pharaoh. But in the wilderness, of course, they committed idolatry. Uh, Their hearts really had never left Egypt. And uh, they worship a a calf. Again, it's a reminder that there is a line sometimes that uh, men and women cross of which there is a point of no return from a human standpoint, to be sure. Here, of course, uh, Judas and the nation have uh, crossed that line. Think of the words of Hebrews 6. It is impossible to renew them again to repentance. Uh, Certainly from a biblical uh, standpoint, brings to mind uh, words like Psalm 90, verse 12. Teach us to number our days, O God, that we might apply our hearts to wisdom to measure our days, to reckon that they are important, that what we give our heart to is decisively critical. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23. Uh, Keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. Uh, Those are charged words. 
I mean, I don't know what we keep with all diligence in America, you know, watching football games, uh, entertainment, leisure, family. All those things have a place. All of them have a measure of importance. But uh, the wisest man in all of the world says to us, keep your heart. For at some point, it can get away from you, trick you, lead you astray. Out of it are the very issues of life. So keep your heart. The rejection of Christ in our text this morning is, uh, first, uh, the occasion for great guilt, verses 3 to 8. Uh, first, Judas, uh, as you know from the reading of the text, is moved by profound remorse. Uh, his conscience, if you will, is now on fire. Think about that as you ponder certain actions. The inner being. Uh, simply uh, attacking your very soul, troubling it, disturbing it. That's where Judas is. He's betrayed innocent blood, and now he knows it. Profoundly convicted. He returns the 30 pieces of silver by throwing the money into the sanctuary. He does something also that's very unique. He confesses. Look at the text. I've sinned, having betrayed innocent blood. His actions display deep regret, but not repentance. The word in uh, verse 4 is not the word for repentance. It's just simply profound emotional distress at having committed such a heinous act of betraying Christ. S. Lewis Johnson puts it this way. He has pain of mind and not change of mind. And the significance, of course, is telling. The one is mere emotion. The other embraces a purpose to think and to act differently. It's really what the word repentance means. You have an afterthought. You change your mind, and as a result of the change of your mind, you change your actions. Judas is gripped emotionally. It's not genuine repentance. Another illustration of this, the previous book that we just looked at, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 17. Context is of Esau. As you know, he sells his birthright for earthly things. He regrets it. And so we read afterwards, as you know, when he wanted to inherit this blessing, he was rejected. He could bring about no change of mind, though he sought the blessing with tears. Just simply the reminder that uh, sometimes people deeply regret their actions, uh, but deep regret, emotional distress is not a salvific event. Uh, Esau crossed the line Judas has crossed the line. Uh, they've rejected God and they cannot be recovered. Again, we don't think in those terms in our, our culture. Well, where there's life, there's hope. Well, maybe there's a measure of truth to that, but not in terms of these two men. They were gone forever. Crossed the point of no return. 
consequences of rejecting Christ. It is something, I think, of a reminder of our own culture. We have this idea that we can you know, hang around Jesus uh, as long as it's convenient, of course. Certainly wouldn't want to inconvenience ourselves with great spiritual duty, pondering the majesty of the Word of God, seeking God with the passion that we ought to seek Him. Uh, I mean, can't we just hang around? You know, children uh, grow up in church, they hang around their parents, and I mean, that's the salvific event, isn't it? <laughs> leave, uh, leave home and uh, directions of their hearts uh, take a different turn. Hopefully they won't, but sometimes they do. It's a dangerous thing sometimes to think that we uh, have God and we can uh, rub him like, like we would a genie, tell him things we want, give to him our expectations about life and what we want and what we expect, and God stand and deliver. Judas had done a measure of that. He, the problem is he had an incorrect view of the kingdom of God. And so he just hung around to see what Jesus would do. When he finally learned that it was not a physical kingdom that Jesus was going to inaugurate, he bolts. He'd had enough. He betrays the Lord for 30 pieces of silver. He crosses a line and can't be recovered, gone forever. So again, I remind you as a way of warning, be very careful about hanging around the faith because that's not what truly accepting Christ is. Judas hung around. Esau hung around. They were lost forever. And so we read of Judas in rapid fire order, tragic verbs. He departed. He went out. And he hanged himself. You know, things go bad in life. Uh, they even go bad in life for Christians. We are the fallen sons of uh, Adam uh, because the world in which we live is under curse. We're going to taste a measure of that. Uh, those verbs to me chill the souls. But it brings about a sobering clarity that's uh, dangerous to forsake the Lord. Uh, I'm, I'm reminded time and again of uh, the wonderful line of uh, our Lord's uh, prayer as he teaches us to pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. I mean, the world is full of uh, 10,000 ambushes. Now, Satan is about us as a roaring lion. And sometimes uh, we need to steal the heart. Be careful of just hanging around the church or the faith. Uh, some, of course, recover. Uh, we know, for example, brilliant example of Peter. Uh, Peter weeps bitterly at his denial of the Lord, and the Lord recovers him. What a remarkable illustration of grace. Uh, reminder for us to be gracious to one another. Uh, people are going to betray us. We need to be gracious. The Lord was gracious to us. We betrayed him. He recovers Peter, and he recovers all who are his own. But Judas is a pathetic figure who at some point crossed a point of no return. 
bears, I think, a, a momentary reflection. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 5 and 32nd verse, Moses uh, speaking to the sons of Israel gives them a very uh, unique charge from, from my standpoint. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 5 and the 32nd verse. So be careful to do what the Lord your God has commanded you. Do not turn to the right or to the left. Walk in all the ways that the Lord your God has commanded you so that you may live and prosper and prolong your days in a land that you will possess. I mean, we, would, we would change that from the physical geography, of course, to, uh, to heaven. To stay the course not to turn to the right or to the left. Very interesting that that uh, same element is picked up by Joshua. Uh, Moses fades off of the scene. Uh, Joshua is now, in a measure, a new Moses. Uh, it's very interesting it doesn't have a new message. It's the same message that Moses had. Imagine that. Uh, Joshua chapter 1, the 7th verse. Be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the laws my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left. Do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. Again, that would, for us as the Church of Christ, in our own century, turn upon spiritual affairs. We will prosper spiritually. Uh, to use the great imagery of uh, Psalm 1, our leaf will not wither. Whatever we will do will prosper. We're like a tree planted by the rivers of water. It's what God does to us spiritually when he gives us new hearts. Our lives are fructified for the glory of God, uh, bearing the fruit of the Spirit in a wasteland, in a dry and thirsty land. The church is different. Uh, we, again, bear the fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, and self-control because of the work of the Spirit. In a way, Judas uh, attempts to do a good work, doesn't he? He returns the money. It's too late. Uh, we do that in our culture. Well, I, I did a terrible thing. I'm going to go write a check to, uh, I don't know, name your cause. Well, maybe I should add a couple zeros to it. Again, it doesn't, doesn't fix uh, his uh, perfidy. He's crossed the lines too late, but he, he returns the money. Uh, again, it's a reminder. Uh, 
As the church of Jesus Christ, we, we do produce good works because the Spirit of God fructifies us. Uh, but our good works are not salvific, and certainly the work of Judas is not in returning the money. As for the Sanhedrin, they try to do the same thing. I mean, of course, there's no remorse on their behalf, they, but they, they tell you, well, that's your deal, buddy. You betrayed him, not us. That's your responsibility. So they leave him alone to uh, fester in his own juices. Now, they can't take it because it's blood money. It was unclean, so they purchase a potter's uh, field for the burial of strangers. Uh, the name is related to the fact that it was once uh, the source of uh, clay used by potters. It's their attempt to do a good work in an act of charity. doesn't work for them. It didn't work for Judas. The field is renamed the field of blood and testimony against them. Uh, Luke gives us uh, commentary on this in the first chapter of the uh, book of Acts, verses 18 and 19. With the reward he got for his wickedness, Judas bought a field, and there he fell headlong. His body burst open, and all his intestines uh, spilled out. Everyone in Jerusalem heard about this, so they called the field in their language, Akeldama, that is the field of blood. Uh, of course, indirectly, Judas did purchase the field. In uh, either of its own or in the attempt to recover the body, it, uh, it breaks free and was dashed a fitting into his uh, dastardly act and a telling commentary on his perfidy. Illustration for us that when you betray Christ, things don't go well for you, either in time or in eternity. Let's uh, shift away from the temporal guilt to the eternal reality, verses 9 and 10. Both uh, Judas and the Sanhedrin, and of course subsequently the nation at large, reject Christ. But we learn in verse 9 and 10 there's something uh, much more terrible. They reject Christ because Christ has rejected them. Uh, we certainly don't think in those terms in the American church by and large, but that's the teaching of verses 9 and 10, Matthew 27. Yes, in the human realm, they were rejecting Christ. What Matthew does is impose the divine realm upon their human actions, teaching us that God was the first cause. He rejected them, and that's why they rejected Christ. A reminder that rejection is a dangerous thing. Uh, again, by and large, the church would reject uh, such notions today, but that's clearly the case from the citation from the book of Jeremiah. Uh, but it does remind us of human responsibility and accountability, but it also embraces the terrifying reality of divine absolute sovereignty, which governs, in the words of the Westminster Shorter Catechism, all God's creatures and all their actions. I mean, first there's Judas. Think of it in terms of the sixth chapter of the Gospel of John. End of the text, uh, Jesus says, Have I not chosen you the twelve, and one of you is a devil? 
Meaning what? That he chose Judas to do his work. He elected all 12 of them, 11 to life and one to everlasting reprobation and ruin. Well, that's chilling. Perhaps there's a way to reflect upon that sovereignty that we ought to uh, think or write about God. Uh, We ought to understand that he's holy and majestic and totally sovereign. I think one of the applications of the text, we have this way in Advent season thinking, well, God's just a Santa Claus, and if I do enough good things in the world, he'll bless me, and he'll give me the things that I want, and everything will go right for me. We need to recover God's view of himself from Holy Scripture. Majestic, sovereign God, sovereign even over the betrayal of Judas. Such should cause us to have a proper estimation of who God is and to fear him in love and in reverence and worship him in light of the majesty of his power. I mean, for us, when men uh, rebel against God or hate God, we, we see that as, a, as a, something that's a terrible act, but In the human perspective, it is, but in divine sovereignty, it's God who is uh, even providentially in control over that because he's a sovereign God. It's a God that we ought to think uh, his thoughts after himself that we find in Scripture. Well, this is the case because Matthew gives us a quotation from Jeremiah, meaning that their apostasy is the product of indirect prophetic fulfillment and typology. Notice the reading of the scriptures. Judas and the Sanhedrin had rejected God, and I quote, that what was spoken of by the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. In other words, what they did was prophetic fulfillment. Jeremiah the prophet prophesied it, and so it's no surprise in the counsel of God because the word of God is being fulfilled. Again, we need to recover a high view of Scripture. That Scripture has prophesied everything. It's all going to be fulfilled according to the Word of God. In this case, their rejection, their apostasy, prophetically fulfilled prophet Jeremiah. Great illustration of the importance of the Word of God, Isaiah chapter 1, likens uh, man to... uh, Uh, to nature, uh, to the grass that will come soon green in springtime, uh, the beauty of springtime grass, or the flowers that will bloom in the springtime, the roses or whatever it is you plant in your garden. You know what Jeremiah says about that? Likening that metaphor to man, the grass withers. And the flower fades because the Lord blows upon it with his word. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God shall stand forever. We think that men come and go, they are elected president or chancellor or uh, into the Senate or to the House or to the Admiralty or whatever the case might be. And they blossom like a beautiful flower. 
Only until God is finished with them and he will blow upon them and they will shed their bloom. It's only the word of God stands forever. Let's look at the word of God as it blows upon uh, the nation. Matthew does something that's very unique. He blends the events of two texts, Zechariah 11 and Jeremiah chapter 19. Again, verses 9 and 10 of Matthew 27. He's going to allude to two texts, but put them under one author, uh, namely the major prophet Jeremiah as the source. Let's begin with Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 11. It's a text we've looked at previously, but our Lord returns to it again. Zechariah chapter 11, verses 12 and 13. I told them, if you think it best, give me my pay, but if not, keep it. So they paid me 30 pieces of silver. So again, you see this in Judas throwing the silver to the treasury and Sanhedrin taking it and buying a potter's field. And the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter. The handsome price at which they priced me. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord to the potter. And you can see the typological uh, reference that uh, Matthew is using in this citation from Zechariah chapter 11, verses 12 and 13. Uh, the context is uh, what is striking there's two shepherds. Uh, the first shepherd is uh, Zechariah. God appoints Zechariah as a true shepherd, but the flock rejects him. He asks for his pay. They give him the ridiculously low sum of 30 pieces of silver. It's a reflection of their low esteem of Zechariah as a good shepherd who shepherded the people with the word of God, who labored to protect them to lead them in the right path. They, they could have cared less about that. So they pay him a ridiculously low sum, and God tells uh, Zechariah to return the money. God does something worse. He raises up false shepherds who are unqualified and uncaring. And as the shepherd goes, so go the sheep. If you have your text open to the 11th chapter of the book of Zechariah, look at verse 16. Then the Lord said to me, take again the equipment of the foolish shepherd, for I'm going to raise up a shepherd over the land who will not care for the lost or seek the young or heal the injured or feed the healthy, but will eat the meat of the choice sheep, tearing off their hooves. Woe to the worthless shepherd who deserts the flock. God says, you don't want good shepherds? I'll give you bad shepherds. You don't like my word? I'll give you uh, words of apostasy, rebellion, heresy, and they'll destroy you. So again, a marvelous reminder that in the days of the Lord, the nation did not want Christ as the good shepherd, so he gave them the Sanhedrin, who taught them folly, led to their ultimate ruin. I wonder if that occurs in America today. Go to church, do you hear the word of the Lord? You hear some philosophy about self-concept and being a good person. And of course, I'm all for that. I'm all for a self-concept, but 
uh, word of the Lord is to hold Christ in highest of esteem and to follow him as our Savior. I'm not so sure that we haven't embraced all types of folly and myths and worldly philosophy because we reject Christ as the good shepherd and so God gives us what we want. Bad shepherds who will pack our brains full of folly. That's Zechariah chapter 11. That's Matthew chapter 27. The reality is, of course, that they have rejected Christ and so... Reminder, the word of God, he has rejected them and placed over them false shepherds. You know, the application's quite stirring. Be very careful, ladies and gentlemen, about the shepherds you follow. Because if the shepherds are evil, they'll destroy your soul. The problem in our culture is that sometimes wolves are dressed like shepherds. But that's the point of the scripture. Be very careful. Because wolves have come into the shirt the church dressed like good shepherds and sometimes it takes incredible discernment and wisdom and knowledge of the word of God to discern what is true and what is false. Here in the case of the nation, they followed the false shepherds according to the word of God and the false shepherds have destroyed the nation. Uh, The other text that's alluded to is uh, the prophet Jeremiah 19th chapter. Jeremiah chapter 19 is an acted parable. Verse 1, God says, uh, Jeremiah, go buy a clay jar from the potter. He's going to act out a parable uh, to the spiritual leaders of the nation. Go buy a jar from a potter and go to the valley of Hinnom, the potter's field. Text now is having a greater fulfillment than uh, the actions of Judas and the nation. Uh, Jeremiah goes there and indicts the nation on behalf of uh, the word of the Lord. Uh, Look at the fourth verse of Jeremiah chapter 19. For they have forsaken me and made this a place of foreign gods. Well, God had been gracious. He'd sent the prophet, the word of the Lord, and they reject, uh, they reject uh, Jeremiah for that which is worthless. And in the process, they have rejected God. That is a serious matter, ladies and gentlemen. That's the point of the text. Rejecting God is a serious thing. Rejecting God's divine shepherds is a serious thing. So what does God say about that? Verse 7, in this place I will ruin the plans of Judah and Jerusalem. I will make them to fall by the sword of their enemies. Again, goes on and on. Uh, Skip down to verse 10, then break the jar. As God says, that's what I'm going to do to you. Immediate fulfillment is in the coming of Babylon who will destroy the nation, plunder it, and carry off the people captive. But now the greater fulfillment is in Matthew. They forsook the Lord, and Titus and his legions will destroy the city and the temple. Prophetic fulfillment means their actions are according to the word of God. That's a chilling thought, but that's the point of the text. 
So many people play fast and loose with the word. We ought to hold it in highest regard with the deepest of reverence because it is the very word of God captured for us in Holy Scripture. We ought to esteem it because if we do not, it's like a knife without a handle. It'll cut either way. Uh, they rejected God, spiritual leaders of the nation, because of the terrifying prospect of the first cause, God rejected them. I understand that's difficult theology is simply point to one text, notwithstanding the prophetic citation, uh, but it's really reduplicated for us in a more explicit sense, Acts chapter 4. Verses 27 to 28. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to inspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. What more can I say? They acted out, lived out the will of the Lord. ought to refine our understanding of the absolute supremacy and majesty of God over everything because that's exactly the point of the text, that even when men reject the Lord's anointed, it is because God has rejected them. It's the worst of all possible scenarios of judgment. It's telling us to the dangers of turning away from the Savior. So rejecting the Savior has temporal consequences and incredible guilt and, of course, much worse, eternal consequences of spending eternity with Satan and all of the fallen angels, world without end. There are consequences. The good news for us is that there are consequences of just that, the good news of the gospel. Temporal consequences of accepting Jesus. You have a good conscience. Judas had a terrified conscience. Esau, driven by tears and great remorse, uh, had a conscience that could not be recovered. It's different for uh, the man or the woman who's come to Christ, accepted Christ as a Savior. Uh, very fond of uh, this because I know the conscience sometimes uh, can be a terrifying event in our lives. The book of Hebrews, uh, chapter 9, the 14th verse, uh, speaks to the reality of our conscience in light of the work of Christ. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 14, how much more then? Will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our conscience from acts that lead to death? Think of it in a flash. All of us have done terrible things in life. We can't change them. But Jesus can change us. The shedding of his blood, he cleanses our conscience. It's one of the greatest possessions of all of life, forgiveness of sin. 
We can rejoice because of what God has done for us. Again, I understand sometimes we have dreams about things we've done. We break out in cold sweats because of the work of Christ, the shedding of his blood. We have a good conscience because he makes us new. Great reminder of what it means to accept Jesus. We know what happened to Judas and the nation. Now we know what happens to the church of Jesus Christ when it accepts Jesus. Its conscience is recovered. We find a similar reality in the 10th chapter of the book of Hebrews. I say this because it really ought to mean so much to us. Much of our world is people trying to get over guilt. They can't handle the baggage that they've come to pick up. And I don't know, they go the way of chemistry or whatever. Uh, we go the way of Christ, and he, he heals us from our evil conscience. Uh, Hebrews chapter 10, 22nd verse. Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from a guilty conscience, having our bodies washed with pure water, majesty of the grace of God. We draw near to him in light of what he does to us. I suspect your troubled conscience was one of the things that led you to Jesus. Then what does he do? He cleanses you. What a difference. Judas, those chilling verbs, he departed and he went out and he hanged himself. We come to Christ, he makes us clean. We go out and we praise him, men made new, in light of what he did for us. It's one of the greatest of the benefits of coming to Savior. Your conscience is uh, clean. But we could go on and on, could we not? Uh, reminded of, uh, of the love of God, the intensity of the love of God. We, uh, we live in a culture that perverts love. Just read your, your magazines or your newspaper. Uh, great reminder of, of uh, love of God in a text that's uh, familiar to, uh, to all of us. Uh, John 3.15, everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. This powerful event in believing in Christ, you get eternity and you will never perish. That's the promise of the scriptures. The world is going to perish, world to that end. We will never perish because of the love of God. Again, another benefit, if you will, accepting Christ. We know the, uh, everything that accrued to Judas and to the nation, but it's different for the church. Uh, we come to Christ. We, we understand who he is. We have the conviction of what the scripture speaks to us, that it is true. And then we rely upon him and no one else. And we have eternal life and the love of God forever. God so loved that he gave. 
sacrificial love of God, the gift of uh, the Son. I'm very fond of, uh, of John chapter 13, verse 1, of his uh, disciples. Jesus says that he loved them, but he loved them to the end. Uh, runs them to ground. Chases them until they're trees. Wins them to himself because he loves them to the end. That's what it means to be accepted by God, accepting Christ. If you're, not, if you're here this morning and you are not a Christian or maybe you've just been hanging around the faith and maybe something of the actions of Judas and the nation chill your soul, well, come to Christ. Uh, believe upon him whom to know is to know the forgiveness of sin and guilt for all time and life everlasting. That's why accepting or rejecting Christ are serious matters. A good reminder to us as we begin... Uh, new day of a new year, the marvelous uh, things that accrue to us because of our union with the Savior. Uh, they ought to imprint our souls and never leave us all the year long. Every day throughout the new year, clean conscience, never going to perish, life without end. There's another reason that I think it's profoundly important to accept Christ, and that's his daily provisions. So we, we come this morning uh, being reminded of the temporal provisions of the sacraments that uh, help us in the journey of life. Uh, you've, you've sang the hymn, Through Many Dangers, Toils, and Snares. I have already come. How do we get through those things? Well, one way is the provision of the sacrament of the Lord's table. God doesn't just say, good luck, I hope you make it. He comes to us on every day, and he comes to us in special events, like the sacrament of the Lord's table, to remind us of his provision. It's not in the, the, uh, the wine or the bread per se. That's a physical representation of what we are to embrace by faith, that God nourishes us and quenches our thirst in his constancy of his provision. I mean, the background, is it not, is the wilderness wanderings. The people were hungry, and what did God do? He gave them bread. The people grew thirsty, and what did, they, what did God do? He gave them drink. And they still rebelled against him. You and I are different. God gives us new hearts. When we're hungry and thirsty, he comes in this table uh, to give us uh, bread, to give us wine, to remind us of his goodness. Because our Savior is everything, and accepting him means everything. Uh, scriptural warrant for this is uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Verse 23, For I received from the Lord that which I also passed on to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Children are pretty good about reminding their parents that it's mealtime. God reminds us that we have a mealtime too, the sacrament of the Lord's table. We're hungry, spiritually hungry, and he comes to give us bread. 
In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me, for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Elsewhere in the book of 1 Corinthians, uh, the Apostle Paul speaks of the sacrament as having fellowship with the Lord. So uh, our Lord spiritually comes to meet with us. Uh, he becomes the host of the table to give us bread, to give us wine, because he knows we are hungry and thirsty through all of the many dangers, toils, and snares of life, that he is always with us, never forsakes us, uh, grants to us his every blessing. As I, uh, as I break the bread, uh, and we begin to pass it to you, I ask you to hold it, until which time all are served. But it's a good occasion, I think, for you to give thanks for the goodness of God. If you need to confess sin, again, get about it and receive from the Lord that which he delivered to Paul, to the church, that he might bless the church as his people. Give him thanksgiving to what I consider one of the great blessings of life, and that is a clean conscience. Rejoice in his goodness that his body was taken, that we might be set free. After a suitable time, I'll give thanks, and we'll eat together. We will revel in the grace of God, in the provision of the Savior, the one for the many. Worship him, meet with him, receive from his hand, rejoice in the presence of his spirit. He will strengthen us in the vagaries of our lives. Prepare our hearts to partake of the bread.